I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Somewhere in literature. I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage. And I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. All right, Sugi, I got a story I want to tell you. One, I was one time, I wanted to write about this guy who kept the books and done a lot of other things for the 1970s version of the Kansas City mob. We had dinner at 5 p.m. at an Italian restaurant in Kansas City after he'd gotten out of prison. Nobody else was in the place. And do you know what he told me? That Martin Scorsese had already done a movie about him? (laughs) Yes, that is true, uh, if you've ever seen Casino. But no, here's what he told me. That in the federal penitentiary, he loved to read the New York Times book review. Oh my goodness, we have to talk to former guest NYT book review editor Pamela Paul about that. I think she'd appreciate it. I, I don't know. I don't know if she'd appreciate this part of it, though, because he didn't seem to care about the reviews. What he loved was the letters to the editor section where the writers always write in to complain about the reviews they've received. And then, even better, when the reviewer wrote back defending their review, that this was, that was what this guy, this former mobster, thought was hilarious. The way the writers would go after each other, hammer and tong, sometimes for weeks on end. I see. And you're telling me this story because that's what we're investigating this week. The long, ancient, and still ongoing tradition of writers arguing with writers. Is it a good and useful practice, or is it just bad manners, or worse, a way for writers to get attention and claw their way to prominence? We do not know the answer to this. We're picking the subject because there might be good arguments on both sides. Um, In the second half of the show, we will be talking to Emily Temple, a senior editor at LitHub, about the way social media has brought the writer's feud into the 21st century. But first, we're thrilled to talk to the writer Edmund White about the history of the writer's feud, his own past arguments, and whatever else he'd like to talk about. Edmund is the author of more than 28 novels, memoirs, biographies, you name it. 
He won the 2018 Penn Saul Bellow Award for Achievement in American Fiction. He's been the New York State author, is a member of the Academy of Arts and Letters, and The Guardian describes his most recent book, The Unpunished Vice, as, quote, the gentle whisper of a sweetheart. Edmund, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. Edmund, it's great to see you, or at least hear you. Oh, well, thank you, Whitney. (laughs) All right, so go ahead, go ahead. Whitney and I were colleagues at Princeton. Uh, Well, yes, I was there briefly. You've been there for quite a long time. It was so much fun getting to work with you and becoming friends. Uh, Yeah. So we're here to talk about the opposite of friendship, the writer's feud. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) A friend of mine... Well, you know, I I was always an admirer of Aaron Copland, the composer. Yeah. Uh he's, He's the only person I know in the world of the arts who never had a feud with anybody. And <laughs> he was so diplomatic. And I always thought, that's the way to go. And I I assumed I was so good-natured and uh, easygoing that I would never have a feud, and I never wanted to have one. But then uh, in my life, two of them sprang up. I mean, I sort of, I have to admit, like, I'm not a feuder. You know, I, I have very strong personal opinions, but whenever they get into the public realm, I get scared, you know. Uh, also, what about this word feud? I had a friend tell me that it's like not, I shouldn't use that word because it has a negative connotation. And a lot of times you have writers who are outsiders, maybe with less power, and they attack a writer who's in the establishment. It shouldn't be called a feud. Um, I don't know. What do you think of that term, Edmund? Oh, well, I, I think it. It, it communicates what it wants to communicate. I mean, it, <laughs> it says it like it is. <laughs> Would you have a better term, or are we just going to stick with that for the for the purposes of this podcast? That, that's a good one. It sort of puts me in mind of I just imagine people dueling. Um, and so you made you you've had a long illustrious career as a writer, and you are known as a terrific teacher and mentor. And you know, Whitney says you have an amazing talent for friendship and you were yeah, you were mentioning your own arguments and breaks with writers and maybe most notably with Gore Vidal and Susan Sontag uh, we'll talk about both of those later but do you have a theory on why writers feuds happen and arise I mean why why everyone but Aaron Copeland why do we get into it do they serve a purpose <laughs> well I, I mean two younger uh, writers um, uh, started feuds with me and uh, I mean, I didn't respond very, <laughs> very um, uh, aggressively, but uh, but you, I could see that they were like career-making right. uh, feuds. You know, uh, one is the writer Dale Peck, and uh, he asked me to blurb his first novel, which was a gay novel uh, that Forrest Ross published, and I did blurb it after much prompting. Yeah, I mean, the, the 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 editor kept writing me and saying, "This is the last chance for gay literary fiction," which it turned out not to be. But but in any event, I I gave it a blurb. But then the very next thing he did was turn around and, and assassinate me in the in the uh, Village Voice, and then he published a book called Hatchet Jobs. I remember that one. Yeah. And I think, you know, he <clears throat> he tried to make his career. I think he's fairly repentant now I mean, and has sort of taken it back. But uh, but anyway, I was surprised that he did that. The other person, younger person that I had an 
a feud with was Essex Hempel, uh, who was a black poet who died of AIDS. And he uh, uh, attacked Robert Maplethorpe <clears throat> when I was teaching at Brown. And the biggest um, thing he was saying is that Maplethorpe uh, objectified black men. And I said, well, first of all, the French word for lens is objectif. You know, he, there's no way a photograph isn't going to objectify people. And secondly, uh, his biggest proof was a photograph that Maplethorpe had taken, and it, it showed a, a headless man with a b very large penis called Man in a Polyester Suit. And I said, well, that was Maplethorpe's lover, Milton, who said he could take a picture of his face or of his genitals, but not both together, because he didn't want his mother to know that he was gay. <laughs> so, I mean, so in this case, it was rather than a white man exploiting a black man, it was a black man dictating the terms of the photo. And the, the third thing I said is that I wrote a book where I interviewed gay people all over the country called States of Desire. Yeah, and and uh, and in in Atlanta, I interviewed quite a few uh, gay black men who loved. This was in the late seventies, early eighties, and they loved Maplethorpe because he was the only one taking pictures of black people. Well, those seem like two different kinds of feuds in an odd way. Like the, the there is the feud that's careerist. You know, uh, I was I, I, I there's a great book by a writer named uh, Coke about. Um, Hemingway and Dos Passos and their relationship and the way that Hemingway used Dos Passos to gain entry into and get introduced to people who were in and around the Spanish uh, Civil War and then turn around and attack Dos Passos because uh, Hemingway wanted to displace him as sort of the writer for the left. You know, and those, those kinds of feuds happen all the, the time. And I, I think they're important. Like you have to understand literature, like liter writers have egos. I think we hide them a lot, but they're always in action, you know? Yeah, well, well yeah. I mean, And that seems like what the Dale Pack feud was about to me, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that could be, sure. Uh, you know, kill your father. Right, right, yeah. Uh, the Faulkner attacked Sherwood Anderson. You have lot, There are lots of examples of that. Um, in, in, but then the, 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 the Mapplethorpe discussion you're having is like a legitimate artistic dispute, it seems like, that just comes into the public in a way. Well, it, I mean, like so many aspects of political correctness, uh, nobody bothers with the facts. So um, we do want to talk about this play, Terre Haute, um, that you wrote and that uh, Gore Vidal was a character in. He signed off on that depiction, according to you, and then yet he went ahead and turned around and sort of attacked you in an interview in the Times of London calling you a filthy low writer and other unpleasant things. Uh, <laughs> you, you two knew each other. How did you feel when you found out about that? I, I, I was sitting here being interviewed in my apartment in New York, being interviewed by somebody uh, for a newspaper when I got a phone call and it was a, a journalist in Toronto who said, I'm sitting here with Gore Vidal and he tells me he's going to sue you. And I, my first words were, oh, that's so silly. <laughs> and uh, because 
I I knew that Gore was uh, drunk by noon, and and that he didn't, and he'd also had very uh, heavy surgery on his hip, and uh, with lots of uh, painkillers. So I don't think he remembered anything, but I had gotten him to fax me. Remember faxes? He, I gotten I'd gotten I'd gotten him to fax me his okay on the play because the BBC was going to present it on the radio, but they wouldn't do it unless they had a go ahead from him. So he he wrote me a fax saying it's okay by me, but then I don't think he remembered that, and. Uh, and anyway, he loved disputes. He he had tried years earlier to get into one with me uh, when I wrote something in The Nation. I, I said uh, that I was talking about AIDS literature, and I said, well, as Yeats said, the two best subjects for literature are love and death. And so Gore wrote in a letter to the editor, where did he say that? People are always making up these quotations, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't answer because I didn't want to uh, get into it with him because he was quite lethal and could go on for hours and days. And uh, But then finally, uh, the play was being done in in all over the UK and, and many places in America. And, uh, and I thought, well, oh, I know, somebody wanted to publish it. Uh, and so I thought, well, that's fine, but I, I, I don't want him to sue me. And already a Broadway producer had backed out because she had heard that he might sue. So anyway, but I, I wrote him a very nice letter, and I said, you, you know, we met in 1974 through Peggy Guggenheim in Venice, and you were extremely nice to me. And then we met again through... Christopher Ishwood in 1978, and you blurbed a book of mine very kindly. And I made it sound sort of like I was a disciple of his, which I wasn't, but I but I, I tried to be the diplomatic. And then finally I said, uh, you know, you did give me permission to go ahead with this play. And uh, so then I never heard from him again. That's so interesting, because I think that you're getting a little bit at I mean, when do feuds feed creative energy and when do they just suck it away? I mean, I think so much of the time when you were talking about when your personal opinions enter the public arena and how you get scared. And I think those decisions for me are often ones of preserving my energy for something else. And I think of you sort of being diplomatic as a way to settle it. Um, yeah, because I don't want to, I mean, I, I assume, Edmund, it took you a really long time to compose that letter. Like, those are the kind of letters that I'm like, well, I'd rather be writing my book right now. Than- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, I uh, was happy to write that letter, and I felt very justified because, in fact, we had always had very nice, uh, if remote, relations. Relations. So I thought, why? Uh, I, for instance, when he came here to New York after I'd first written the play, I went to uh, see him in a, a Central Park South hotel where he was staying. And his partner, Howard, was dying in, in the next room, and, and Gore was on two crutches. And anyway, I, I felt very sorry for him. And uh, then I attended the lecture he gave that night, 
at the Ethical Culture Society. Anyway, I uh, I only had good feelings toward him, and and I didn't want to have a dispute. Although he loved disputes because he knew that the public the public likes them. So there are obviously these bad feuds, and then there are these other ones in which necessary, if unpleasant work is is done or something is revealed through these disputes. We were talking to Claire Vay Watkins after her essay on pandering was published, and in that essay she's very critical of Stephen Elliott, and that seems like an area in which Witt's friend is right, and the term feud kind of falls short. There's she was outing him for horrendous behavior, which he deserved, and that doesn't seem like a feud. And sort of like the the Mapplethorpe example, where you were talking about people kind of getting at really artistic differences in a way that maybe also makes it intelligible to a wider readership and gets at bigger differences between between artists. Does that seem to you like feud? No, or something? I I think the main thing is that fiction is very hard to read and even harder to talk about. It's <laughs> It's it's not a very beguiling form. I mean, not like the movies or pop music. I mean, it's it's hard for people to get into it. Now people have no concentration left, so they can't really read it. But if they do read it and they're supposed to discuss it, they don't know what to say because they can't really talk about point of view and uh, dramatic tension or any of the things that we writers might talk about. So they they rather have gossip. And that's why I think people like Fuse. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think you're you're certainly right that people people like gossip. I mean, can you imagine if there were and maybe such a thing exists, like a, a, an epistolary book of like feuding correspondence? I think it, everyone would snap it up. Um, and well, I don't know, but then yeah, I, thinking about I, like I, yeah. I've known some very destructive feuds, like uh, Mary McCarthy had one with um, uh, Lillian Hellman Lillian, Lillian Hellman. Hellman and Lillian Hel- uh, Mary McCarthy on on Dick Havitt's show said uh, Lillian Hellman has never said anything that's honest or true including if and and but and <laughs> and, and uh, 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 Lillian Hellman sued her and Lillian was very rich and Mary was very poor and when Mary died, all she had was $40,000 in her checking account, which sounds pretty good to me, but I guess for a big star writer, it's not so much. And uh, anyway, uh, Lillian persisted in that suit for year after year, and people said, oh, come on, leave her alone. You know, poor thing, she didn't have any money, and, and she's ill and whatnot. But no, she kept on and on and on. And then finally, luckily, Lillian died. <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, Mary died. And so, but anyway, I knew them both. The, another few that I, is this going on? To, am I going? We're here on for to? the historical <laughs> on the feuds and you're delivering. Give, Just bring it the, on. Give us the We're being the quiet because it's good. We want it. We want it. <laughs> And another one was David Levitt, the gay American novelist, uh, who wrote Family Dancing. He had a dispute with Stephen Spender because he had taken uh, elements, quite a few elements, out of uh, Spender's memoirs about the Spanish Civil War called uh, The World Beneath the World. And... And David had had integrated them into a novel 
called While England Sleeps. And uh, I, I happened, I think, to be the only person in the world who knew both of them. And I kept trying to counsel David on how to behave, that he should touch his forelock and and write a, a public apology and so on, and that then Spender would be satisfied and go away. But he didn't do that. <laughs> but he didn't do that. And so Spender uh, uh, sued, and the English publisher withdrew the entire book, novel. The, oh, my God. The, because, you know, they everybody respected Spender so much, who was one of the two or three grand old men of, mm-hmm. of English letters. And um, and nobody wanted to, to be sued by him. So uh, anyway, David uh, David uh, had to withdraw it. And it, it's a really good book, although it, it is full of plagiarism. But then what isn't? Everybody's plagiarizing <laughs> all the time. I was thinking of the few – this is a, an interesting one that I hadn't known about, but I, I picked up a really great review of uh, – of, um, uh, Barracoon, uh, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston. It was in the it was in the New Republic last, I think, like June or May, and uh-huh. was pointing out that um, how uh, nasty, nastily uh, Richard Wright and um, Ralph Ellison had been when they had reviewed um, Hurston's "Their Eyes Were Watching God." Uh, you know, uh, Richard Wright had written. Her prose is cloaked in that facile sensuality that has dog, dogged Negro expression since the days of Phyllis Wheatley. And, and uh, Ellison said that the novel retains the blight of calculated burlesque that has marred Hurston's work. I mean, but they were having a really legitimate – you were talking about how sometimes a feud can bring uh, things out into the open about books that people don't know how to talk about. I mean, they were having a stylistic argument about how – whether or not she should use dialect, and whether or not that was a good or bad thing, right? And and but I it's just, also an it's also an attack on a woman. I was who, about to say, yeah, and, and also that. And, and Phyllis Wheatley, the other person, in the is a woman, right? And so you know, I mean, I I think that so maybe they're guys, also defending territory in some ways. I think that's it. Yeah, that's I mean, she was, well, yes. you know, she's such a wonderfully gifted writer that. The fact they couldn't recognize that uh, shows that there was something deeply impaired uh, in their judgment. Right. Well, it's interesting how many of these uh, feuds that we're mentioning are between men. There's so few that are that we're talking about that are, um, you know, men versus women, and just the way in, in which I wonder who chooses to engage in this kind of sparring, given how I mean, if you're a woman and you express this sort of um, contentiousness, right? Of course, it has different blowback. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the things that I love about your, uh, particularly your autobiographical writing, your memoirs, you know, in my lives or City Boy, is the incredibly like nuanced and detailed portraits you give of writers who were your friends, who you knew. Um, to me, you know, they're they're very human. They pull back the cover on like. You know, all writers develop a certain public persona, right? And we all know that, right. that mm-hmm. we all know that's not a real thing. Um, I sometimes think the difference between people who have feuds and have and don't are people who are willing, able to admit that their public persona is a persona, and those who refuse to admit that and hate it when anyone shows that they're not exactly who their persona says they are. Um, I don't know yes, what you think I, about that. No, I, I think that sounds absolutely right. Uh, you, you know. Uh, 
I, 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 I'm thinking of Robert Frost and how people were always publishing things about what a horrible father he was and, and a horrible person. And, and yet he was supposed to be kind of like America's grandfather. Mm. So, you know, that was, uh, uh, um, something that people didn't know and didn't want, most of, of his admirers didn't want to know that either. So speaking of kind of calling people out on their behavior, you were pretty close to Susan Sontag until 1985 um, when you wrote the novel Caracol, which is set in 19th century Venice. It contains what you admitted was a, a portrait of Susan that you, you hoped she would learn from. Um, but in City Boy, which is a terrific book, you also write that, quote, on another level, I knew I was trashing her and that she'd be angry. When she really was angry, however, I was surprised. So I guess I'm curious about the purpose and need to create that portrait and if it was useful or necessary to you as a writer to call her out on certain things, even if she'd been close to you, or maybe especially if she'd been close to you and blurbed a boy's own story, as you point out. And then she now she had the her editor, Roger Strauss of Forrest Strauss, uh, write to all 34 publishers who had translated the book into various languages and told them all to remove the blurb. Wow. <laughs> That's a feud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, although I must say in her, uh, in her favor, uh, toward the end of her life, I, I, I was in a, a, a neighborhood restaurant. She lived in this neighborhood too, in New York, in Chelsea. And, uh, I saw a, a man that I knew uh, from Paris um, sitting at a table, and I hadn't known he was going to be here. So I rushed over to the table to say hi to him. And then I saw this woman with white hair and a crew cut, uh, and I thought, oh, my God, that's Susan Sontag post-cancer post treatment. And, uh, and she was with... Um, two other friends of mine. So I went skulking back to my table with my tail between my legs. And all of a sudden, Susan was standing next to the table. And she said, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you, but I hope you don't think I'm trying to pursue our silly little feud. And so I stood up and we embraced. And that was very nice. Oh, that's such a sweet story. Yeah. Uh, you know, because she was a, a, a big heart. And uh, I mean, she could be cruel and everybody tells nasty stories about her now. Uh, but uh, about how arrogant she was and so on. But she had been famous since she was 22. And uh, and and I think people who've been famous all their lives, they they don't usually have old friends because they get rid of all of them and, and, and they get rid they have fights with everybody and they get rid of everybody but that doesn't matter because they're so famous that they the next day they have a whole group of new friends <laughs> I wonder well, if you, uh, you mentioned uh, this one incident that happened in, in 1982 and this is from this is from City Boy um, where you wrote a, uh, a review for in the New York Times book review of, of Roland Barthes' book about Japan, Empire of Signs, and a Barthes, a Barthes reader, and which ed, Susan had edited and introduced. And, and she and uh, Richard Howard were not totally thrilled with the way you'd written the review, and, and they sort of called you and got angry and, 
and and said all this stuff. And and you write that what their attacks on the phone revealed was the extent to which they assumed I was their puppet in a way. I wonder, yeah. you know, was so there was it was there, there was a kind of power imbalance in your in your relationship at least early on, I guess. Uh, well, always, I guess. I, but uh, I mean, she, you know, uh, she was really famous, and he had won the Pulitzer Prize and lots of other prizes, and was uh, among poets. He was quite famous, and he was the poetry editor of the Paris Review and so on. Um, but I think that. Uh, they they were both older than me. I maybe, well, I think I think about ten years older, and uh, but they had already had very established positions, whereas I, I wasn't known at all and, until I was in my forties, and so uh, and they had both helped me. Richard Howard had helped me get my first novel published, Forgetting Elena. He'd taken it back to Random House, which had already rejected it. And he said, you're fools. This is a masterpiece. You must publish it. And so they bowed to him, and they did. And then uh, uh, and then Susan blurbed it. So they both had been very helpful to me. But when I was asked to review the Roland Barthes book, I uh, at the time I was reading uh, a leading French critic, who had written some, I thought, very interesting things about Bart, and I cited him quite a bit. And they were both irritated that I didn't... I did say that it was beautifully translated, but I guess that wasn't enough. And uh, uh, and and I had... Uh, I guess I hadn't talked about her enough. But anyway... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I I mean, I you know, people like that, if they've sponsored you at the beginning of your career, they feel you are permanently in their debt and you should acknowledge them at all times. Hmm. And maybe I should have. Uh, I Maybe I, I think I was, I don't know. <laughs> maybe there's a point at which you have to break free of that too and be your own person and maybe that's part of sometimes what causes people to say, hey, I... I uh, I'm not going to say what you want me to say in this case. I don't know. I think that happens. To yeah, friends. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of regrettable, but I guess it does happen. Yeah. But I I get along with most writers now, <laughs> and uh, I try to help as many young writers as I can. I mean, people call me a blurb slut because I write so many blurbs for people. And. Well, there was that uh, lovely uh, piece in the New York Times where a number of writers talked about the influence that you'd had on them uh, right around the time when the Unpunished oh, Vice came out. That was really beautiful and I thought quite nice and, and indicative of how much of a mentor you've been to so many writers. Yeah, and then this uh, in, in February, there's a, a book is going to be published of like where I've written 27 or 8 books and uh, a different writer writes about each book and some of them are quite yeah and some of them are quite famous like Alan Gerganis and and um, you know but uh, but anyway they're all fascinating essays and and, and I was overwhelmed with the, the idea we certainly can't let you go until we hear you read a little bit and could you talk to us about the unpunished vice how the idea for that book came about yeah. and maybe read to us <laughs> from a passage. 
Well, I've I've written so many blasted autobiographies. I thought, oh my god, I can't write another one. But then again, I I thought I would like to write one uh, that would sort of talk about my life, things like uh, how when you're young you fall in love with people and then you adopt their literary taste because you're in love with them, and uh, or that. In my case, uh, early reading that I did that formed my gay identity and different things like that. Uh, so I was trying to tell, write an autobiography through the books I've read. And the title, uh, The Unpunished Vice, uh, is something that a French writer, the one who translated Ulysses into uh, French, uh, Whose name is Valerie Larbeau? Uh, he he called, he wrote a book called about reading called Sylvie Sampigny. The because the, it is a, probably a vice reading all the time, especially if you're a writer. You, it's so much easier to read than to write, and so uh, I think that. Uh, but it's unpunished. Nobody thinks it's really against the law to read. Okay, I'm going to read from the beginning of chapter one. All my life I've been a tireless, if slow, reader, happy no matter where I find myself, if I have words to look at, content to stand in a grim line in the cold, to undergo the worst sort of medical procedure, or to endure boredom, if I can only read something, until I suffered a massive heart attack at the end of 2014, after open-heart surgery, I was unconscious for three days. When I came to, the painkillers made me sound childish. I couldn't walk, I had no appetite, I slept all the time, and I had no desire to read. In my 20s, I'd known champion readers such as New York poets Richard Howard and John Hollander, who'd scribble down the name of any book that sounded intriguing and immediately order it in a day when ordering wasn't just a matter of touching a key on a computer. Later, I met Susan Sontag, again an encyclopedic reader, who would buy me and many other friends books she thought were essential to my education. She once said to me, when you see a book you want, buy it instantly because you may never find it again. I remember she bought me Sergei Aksakov's memoirs of his childhood among the Cossacks, a thrillingly beautiful hymn to the simple life, mare's milk, and the joyous arrival of spring on the steps. In the hospital, I'd pick up a book, but I couldn't concentrate. The letters remained stubbornly crisp and sharp and separate, isolated, resistant to flow. They didn't resolve into words, nor words into paragraphs. I'd always been curious about things to the point of forgetting my own identity. Sometimes I thought I was preparing for the high cultural questions God would pose as the price of admission into paradise. I wanted to know everything until about age 25, I guess. I'd remember most information I looked up, an arduous process before Google. I was a fierce little autodidact to the degree that when I was eight, my father warned me not to say I know to my elders, but to temper my pronouncements 
by preluding them with, I may be wrong, but I think I heard, <laughs> I may be wrong, but I think I heard somewhere that Cortez conquered the Aztecs, a wimpish disclaimer that irritated and humiliated me. I was a know-it-all uh, then who, uh, who cared more about ascertaining the truth than about appearing humble. I loved the truth and had no patience with those who said, there are many truths, or the truth is always relative. For me, the truth was absolute. Circumstances could not modify it, nor differing cultural perspectives dilute it. But after my heart attack, now I took pleasure in telling tall tales, never submitting them to any sort of skepticism. I went from being a fierce absolutist to a sly imp of the perverse. Perhaps what really happened was far easier to explain. I suddenly couldn't tolerate any ambiguity, struggle, puzzle, or potential conflict because I felt too weak, too vulnerable, too simple to sustain complexity. Also, I was living in a world without event except the arrival of meals, which I couldn't bring myself to touch, and the punctual measurement of my quote-unquote vitals I, who'd always swum in the muddy waters of psychological nuance, the fiction I made and read, now couldn't endure its trying suspense, its destabilizing subtlety, its openness to conflicting interpretation. If I rejected narrative as words on the page, and I didn't even watch TV, the repressed returned in the form of elaborate, hallucinatory dreams. Someone said... Your brain isn't getting enough oxygen. That's why your dreams are so vivid and surreal. These dreams became my new reality. I could scarcely distinguish between what I dreamed and what I experienced. Yeah, that's so great. And, <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. And Sue, oh, go ahead. Wonderful to be on it. Thank you so much. Sugi and I promise never to feud with you. Okay, great. <laughs> I won't won't ever feud with you either. Thanks so much for joining us, Edmund. We encourage our listeners to check out The Unpunished Vice and the full catalog of your amazing work. And now, we're excited to welcome Emily Temple. Emily Temple holds a BA from Middlebury College and an MFA in fiction from the University of Virginia, where she was a Henry Hoynes Fellow and the recipient of a Henfield Prize. Her first novel, The Lightness, will be published by William Morrow in 2020. She's a senior editor at Literary Hub and is the author of one of our go-tos for this episode, an article called 25 Legendary Literary Feuds, Ranked. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So we were just talking to Edmund White, and he uh, mentioned one of the feuds uh, that's in your article for, uh, in the first half of the episode, uh, the McCarthy and Hellman. Uh, it's kind of a heartbreaker um, and, of course, he also mentioned his own beef with Gore Vidal, who spats with Norman Mailer and Truman Capote major list. Um, how did you first get interested in these feuds? Oh, well, listen, uh, everyone loves gossip. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, literary feuds are especially fun to me, at least, because we think of writers as these quiet, introverted, introspective people. So when one of them gets punchy, it's particularly exciting for some reason. <laughs> I think it's so funny because, again, like that is the I, it, writers cultivate that sort of dreamy image, but so few 
that you know when you meet when we know each other in person are not that way. You know? Oh, <laughs> what, of course. What is it about <laughs> cultivating the writerly persona is so odd to me? Like, how did that get set to be the writerly persona? Well, it's just interesting because we like practice remembering things and noticing details, which are all the same skills you need to cherish a grudge. And <laughs> I think, you know, I, I was recently presenting a paper in an academic conference and like read a line about a grudge and it was, I didn't realize that it was a line for laughs and then the whole room laughed and I was like, oh God, <laughs> it's all of us, all the writers in all the fields. It's also something that, you know, you just you have to hold on to something as a writer, right? You don't get that much money. You aren't that popular in, in culture. So you need something. You have to have your feud. <laughs> it's like a focus point. You know, it's like <laughs> Rafael Nadal, Roger Federer. Oh, um, totally. Lillian Hellman, Mary McCarthy. Hey, maybe, why don't you read for us that Lillian uh, Hellman and Mary McCarthy part from your article? This was uh, your, our, your number three feud, by the way. Okay, I'll just start from the top. Mary McCarthy versus Lillian Hellman. Another Dick Cavett-based feud. When Cavett asked Mary McCarthy to name some overrated writers on the air, she noted John Steinbeck, Pearl Buck, and Lillian Hellman, quote, who I think is tremendously overrated, a bad writer and a dishonest writer, but she really belongs to the past. <laughs> and then... It's bad. We're gonna have to. We're gonna comment while you read this because I'm like, okay. oh my god! First of all, it's kind of amazing to, that Dick Cavett asked that question. Yeah, well, you know, he didn't. He was sort of trying to be funny. He was. It was in the script, I believe, that he was going to ask Mary McCarthy to talk about a writer, a young writer that she thought was underrated, and so then he thought he'd be clever and ask the opposite, and she went for it. Oh my god. So this is some amazing, yeah, some amazing trash. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So then according to Cavett, what happened next, this is a a quote from a a New Yorker piece that he wrote. Uh, What's dishonest about her? I asked. Everything, said McCarthy. I said once in some interview that every word she writes is a lie, including and and the. There was an ooh and a laugh from the audience, but otherwise the moment passed innocuously. After the taping, the network's lawyer, paid to anticipate litigation, did not utter even his occasional, Dick, we may have a problem. Instead, he said, nice show. During breakfast the next morning, my assistant called. Have you seen the papers? She said, Hellman is suing Mary McCarthy, PBS, and you for two and a quarter million. And me, I replied, in a prepubescent squeak. The other phone rang, and the familiar whiskey and cigarettes baritone rasped, why the hell didn't you defend me? I guess I never thought of you as defenseless, Lillian, I managed. That's bullshit. I'm suing the whole damn bunch of you. In that, at least, she proved a woman of her word. McCarthy laughed it off at first, but soon became nervous. After all, she didn't have more than $63,000 in the bank, and Hellman was wealthy. Norman Mailer, the pugilist himself, published an appeal to the two of them in the New York Times, asking Hellman to drop the suit, but to no avail. At the New Republic, Franklin Four writes, Hellman was not at all interested in preserving mutual respect and discourse. What she wanted was to see McCarthy bleed, a sadistic course that she, unlike McCarthy, could afford to take, given her personal wealth and her pro bono lawyer. When her friend Roger Strauss tried to convince her to drop the suit, Hellman replied, no, I'm going to teach her a thing or two. With her lawsuit, 
Hellman lucked into a sympathetic judge. Presented with a myriad of opportunities to dismiss the case, McCarthy's statement was clearly intended as a joke. It was an act of literary criticism. Hellman was a public figure. He declined to reject it. If Hellman had prevailed, she would have succeeded in turning harsh literary criticism into a legally punishable offense. But she did not prevail. Four years into the suit, she died, which ended the matter. This fact did little to become McCarthy, who told the New York Times that, I'm absolutely unregenerate. I didn't want her to die. I wanted her to lose in court. I wanted her around for that. Oh, my God. <laughs> These people are so mad. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> I mean, what I, I don't even I don't even want to let her rest in peace. I want her here to lose the lose the judgment. Um, I was struck when we were talking to I mean, and also reading through your list, right? There's so many of the spats that seem to have arisen from reviews or differing opinions on the quality of someone's work. And if she had one, lots of the other feuds in your list might not have happened or there would have been a really chilling effect, I think, on reviewers. Yeah, I mean, they may just not have happened quite so publicly. But, you know, something that it's it's interesting that you say that because it, I'm I'm interested in that urge to sue someone who criticizes your creative work, right? Because it suggests that you, if you're suing someone who's criticizing your creative work for libel, then the suggestion is that you consider your art and yourself to be essentially the same. So if you criticize my novel and I sue you for defamation, that only holds water if I am my novel in some way. Right. Oh, wait, right? are you not your novel? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this wait a minute. I'm going to revise some thinking that I've been doing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, you, you have to, as a writer, not be your novel. <laughs> Otherwise, you're going to end up, you know, crying in the street a lot. Well, that relates to the, the idea of having a persona. I think that's connected. Like the persona, the public persona of the writer is the thing that some people really cherish and want to keep. One of the things that also, what I was thinking when you were reading that is like, boy, I wish I could call up, uh, you know, Seth Myers and get mad at him. You know, how come the Seth Myers show doesn't take my shows? How come, and how come Seth Myers isn't talking about my work? You know, it seems like uh, Lillian Hellman, uh, the, the idea of writers being that important in the culture is sort of odd to me, it seems like that's gone away in a bit. Absolutely. It used to be, I mean, it's, it's kind of sad, but I understand we used to be much more writers. I can't even say we yet. Writers used to be, you're going to be there. More. It's coming out. The book's coming know, out. They're not going to take it away. <laughs> you never know. But yeah, there's nothing like the Dick Cavett show anymore. Not quite. Um, it also made us think about, you know, new technologies, which is one of the things we want to talk to you about. I mean, TV, and you had several, you know, views from that list sort of started on the Dick Cavett show. It's a way that a new technology like television began to get involved in the way that people had public feuds among writers. Um, and today, you know, we have Twitter instead of Dick Cavett, you know. Um, we looked at a, we want to talk about a really interesting piece by uh, Zainab Tufeki. She wrote this about YouTube and the way YouTube radicalizes people, meaning that if you start watching a slightly right-wing video on YouTube, then the suggested videos will be even more right-wing. And then the next one will be even more right-wing. And so her point is that sort of, and that works on the left too, that the, the more extreme your content is, the more the algorithms will drive people's attention to it. And I wonder if you feel like it works that same way on Twitter, like people who are more combative on Twitter get more attention. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I, I think that's certainly true that people who are more combative on Twitter get more attention. Um, you know, we live again, we like gossip, we live for drama. And so you go and you look for the drama and you find the drama. And so I think it's true that to a certain extent, uh, people are encouraged to, or just encouraged by the system to create that drama. I mean, Dick Cavett also was, that was a curated system. He thought, you know, who's going to have an interesting conversation or an interesting argument, this person and this person. And he brought them together on purpose and then asked them, asked them these questions to lead them to have an entertaining argument. Whereas Twitter is really a free for all. Yeah. And and you have to go looking for it. I wonder what both you and Sugi think about this. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. One is the Zainab Tufekis way, which is that it, it, it is a polarizing force, social media. But another way to think about social media when it comes to feuds like this is that it also offers the opportunity for somebody who is uh, not part of the curated system, right, is not a New Yorker writer or is not somebody who's reviewing for the New York Times Book Review who lacks power uh, to engage with and attack somebody who 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 is part of that system and for doing something wrong or for not admitting them i mean it, there is a way that it leverage that allows the people with little power to have a say on the same platform as people with power does that make sense yeah i mean i was it, it does it is a leveling playing field in some ways right so the the feud becomes you can start it as a quote-unquote nobody but it also makes feuds between two established writers interactive that you can as a viewer also participate in real time which is sort of interesting it's a little different than just watching it on tv or writing letters into the newspaper to comment yeah i mean i guess i think of it as more that especially as more and more people use Twitter, it's, I mean, it's, it's a reflection of the real world just as much as it's, um, if it is a leveler, it's also a place where people who have extreme views, it's also easier for them to find each other and for them to gang up on people. Right. And it's pretty well known that people from marginalized identities, like women, people of color get more vitriol online. Um, I know I've definitely seen my share of that. And sometimes, you know, I don't get into it with other people because I don't have the, bandwidth to combat the kinds of numbers that they can muster and because it doesn't seem worth my time. So I wonder also about the moments when I might be giving up on a really on an argument that could be interesting because there's so much background noise that I can't even see it. And I'm when was the last time you had like a really good argument, like a productive argument online? Uh, I I never yeah. try I tried never to have <laughs> arguments online. I'm, that's why I have such a small Twitter following. <laughs> yeah, same. Never. I, I try not to. And I think it's I think it's really hard to have a productive uh, argument on Twitter because or on social media in general because of this very thing that it it tends to bring out the most radical version of people. And they and they have these hordes. And it's true that that, you know, women and people of color really get extra so, Sugi, you're talking about the, like, troll armies, right, that will yeah. cluster around a comet. Is that what you're talking about? I mean, I think that's one version of it, the people who understand themselves as trolls, and there are those folks. But I think that there are also are people who find themselves having, for example, more vitriolic reactions to women um, or women of color or white women and don't really think about why or how their criticisms might accumulate. So to give you an example, years ago, I used to write for a blog called CPM Mutiny, and another 
another writer who was a man and I did roughly exactly the same thing. Um, not the same article, but sort of a similar style post that was, I think it was a reposting from something else. And I got sort of a slew of comments that were very misogynist and that were sort of like, um, you know, you're so horrible and self-promotional. And then he did the same thing and sort of got sort of like, you know, oh, sir, like this is so amazing. And he actually called me up and, and was like, what was that? And I think it was me being a woman in public. I mean, I think that that's what it was. So people have to recognize also like that amount and volume and tone are things that contribute to this feeling of bullying. And I think we're using this word feud. And I think that, I mean, I don't know the extent to which you feel this is accurate, Emily, but to me, the word feud connotes two people who are at close to the same level of power. Um, And a lot of what goes on online now seems like it can be bullying. I mean, even when, um, you know, for example, my, my friend Celeste Aang just wrote this article for The Cut about, um, you know, the vitriol that she's gotten online related to her family and, uh, you know, how this has affected her child and her partner and, and the kinds of language that people use. It. And she started to quote a lot of it. And people were really shocked. And then the responses even to that article really have been so painful to read. Um, the ways in which it accumulates... I don't know that we have even a good way to measure or talk about this. And it seems pretty far from the feuds that you wrote about to me, but I wonder what you think. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, in, and I think I even outlined this a little bit in the introduction to that piece when I was saying, okay, what's a feud? And it does, you're absolutely right. There has to be some kind of, of parody or equality what happened to Celeste Ng is, is really bullying and trolling and attacking. It's not as though she, you know, she shot at someone and someone shot back at her. It's she's going about her life and business and a bunch of people on social media who are essentially anonymous decided that they wanted to attack her for it. That's a a different area, really. So, Sugi, do you feel like the potentially leveling aspects of Twitter that I was talking about earlier are basically outweighed by the sort of like you get ganged up on if you're a woman or a person of color online, like basically that has is makes it worse. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, right now, especially for the variety of people who um, are women and people of color simultaneously, like the amount of shit that you can get is just amazing. And I have seen different people model responses to that, like Roxane Gay or Ijeoma Aluo or other people who, rather than pretending the bullying isn't happening, will actually retweet it. And so that people can see what's happening. It seems to me like the leveling, the leveling is a myth. Um, and I wonder if this, that kind of shouting, like I would be really interested in seeing a good, a good, compelling literary feud, but I feel like I can't see them. I mean, one of the reasons I liked your article was that you know, it had this great historical context and also had some modern conversations in it. Um, and it was kind of surfacing things that I felt like had gotten lost actually in Twitter. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I don't like about Twitter is that it becomes this morass, right? That it's like a swarm of peanut gallerists having a feeding frenzy. There's some clarity in these more historical feuds that, you know, makes them more appealing. It makes them better stories, right? Because even even the more contemporary ones, even when one writer doesn't doesn't like a review and spits on the reviewer, that's between them. That's between two 
established people. And it doesn't come with this whole slew of, of people who seem to just be on the internet to make other people unhappy. Definitely. I mean, I think that is, yeah. I mean, so you're referring, I would assume to the, to the Ford Whitehead. Yes. Yes. Dispute. Um, yeah. Which uh, for those of our listeners who might have escaped knowing about this, it was a pretty interesting, and sort of, I was, I mean, I found it surprising just to, that this would actually happen. Richard Ford appears twice in your list. And um, Colson Whitehead reviewed a multitude of sins for the New York Times. And he didn't, he was, it wasn't a positive review. And um, at a Poets and Writers Party, Ford spat on Whitehead, which was, I just, I'm like, really? And then in a different feud, he, he was the one who shot the book, right? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. He has some issues with his emotions. (laughs) (laughs) I shot a book once. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Shot a book. It was by, it was, I was fishing in Alaska. I was bored and I, and I had bought, uh, one book. It was, it's by a writer that I love, uh, Robert Stone. Um, and, and I really love dog soldiers. I love a lot of Robert Stone's work, but I really did not like flag for sunrise for some reason. And so, uh, I towed it up behind the boat and we shot at it for a while. It wasn't really cause I was mad or wanted to have a few with Robert, Robert Stone. It was cause I was on a boat in Alaska and bored, but I kept the book. I still have it. You might have a feud now. <laughs> I think he's dead. It's too late. Oh, well, you've won then. All right. <laughs> I said, you know, that I didn't mail it to him. You know, that wasn't what that was. That's the next thing not to do. But okay, uh, my, you know, you guys are talking about some more contemporary things. I mean, I, you know, I was certainly paying attention very closely to the Tanahasi Coates Cornell West. Uh, which seems like the most dispiriting feud for me that took place in the last, I don't know, was that a year ago, a year and a half ago? I mean, that that's a classic feud, right, between two really, uh, you know, two established writers, one younger than the other. Yeah, and that did end in a dispiriting way. Just Ta-Nehisi Coates left Twitter, right? He just decided this isn't worth it. Yeah. I wonder what he would say now if he were to talk about it. I mean, has he ever said anything about what that meant? It was just interesting. It was kind of an amazing process, that whole argument, because you would see people line up on different sides. It had political aspects. It had all kinds of things happening. I mean, I think that is something that people will remember. And it was interesting Uh, that Cornell West was like the instigator of that. That was a thing that I think a lot of people found like, well, why did you do that? (laughs) That's one that's actually interesting because people took size and it it created a sort of public debate in a way that I don't know if it was productive, but it certainly seems more productive than cases of straight out bullying. It seemed like implicit in that dispute was an argument, if you want to break things down to classic liberal arguments now, like, you know, a, a centrist democratic way of looking at things and a, and a sort of leftist, more Bernie Sanders type way of looking at things that was underneath that dispute, but never really quite surfaced all the way. Does that make sense or seem fair? 
Yeah. West is more on the left, you know, or wants to position himself there. And, you know, he was critical and part of, of Tanasi Coates in, in ways sort of criticizing him for writing for The Atlantic, you know, which is a more centrist publication. That's what I remember from the dispute. Yeah, that's so the um, the original tweet is, and I just pull it up here. It's Tanahasi Coates fetishizes white supremacy. His analysis slash vision of our world is too narrow and dangerously misleading, omitting the centrality of Wall Street power, U.S. military policies, and the complex dynamics of class, gender, and sexuality in Black America. And um, there were, I mean, an, a, a huge number of articles kind of picking apart um, what Cornell West said and how Tanahasi Coates responded or didn't respond. And one of the people who got into it with them or who commented on it specifically was Jelani Cobb from yeah, New Yorker. I totally remember that. And um, I think that he sort of played the, I don't know that it's, I think I'm probably stretching a little if I say that he was the Norman Mailer of this, because I think he was clearly, clearly siding with Coates on this. But you mean in the sense of the McCarthy Hellman argument that we're Norman? Yeah, Mailer exactly. Because, you know, right. yeah, because when I went, you know, I looked up the, the link that you had put in the article to specifically Norman Mailer's open letter to Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy. And he sort of was like, but this is just so sad. Can't we just, you know, this is dispiriting for all of us. And I felt like, I was reading about um, on some level like this same this same argument uh, the plea that can we not not can we all just get along but that this isn't the tenor of argument that we want to have and when the Times covered this feud they actually specifically quoted Jelani Cobb saying you know, in his thread on Sunday Mr. Cobb suggested Mr. West's argument was driven less by intellectual differences than by professional rivalry so you know I think that there's a text and there's the subtext and one of the things that's so interesting about feuds now maybe is that we know so much more about the people involved in them. Um, well, that gets down we, to our basic thing that we started off talking with Edmund. Like a good feud is one that actually expresses legitimate policy or, you know, literary differences or even political differences. And a bad one is one that's just there because the person is jealous or is, you know, wants to advance their career in some way. Right. I mean, that. so the question is what feud was that it's it was that Jelani Cobb's quote that you were just that you gave about? yeah that was it was it was the times writing about what Jelani had tweeted right. so um, yeah he had I remember a pretty he was a pretty long thread where he was sort of um, riffing on his his take on this particular dispute and and what he saw as Cornell West's um, failings in you know how he was talking about his colleague really and just in this in this public way um and Eve, Eve Ewing, back in the day, uh, described it as, quote, some dudes being mad at each other rather than deeper <laughs> issues. <laughs> this is from the same time. There was that other thread of, like, uh, of, of uh, you know, women writing, saying, like, why, why, why are we paying so much attention to this? I do also remember that, which I, I thought was interesting and cool. Well, it's also like, you know, so many of the literary feuds on your list, Emily, it's like dudes. And when we were talking to Ed, it was like so many dudes. And I just was kind of thinking about, you know, all of the ways that we know that if a woman expresses anger in public, um, you know, the additional risks of that. You know, I can think of scenarios where I've been so angry at someone that... Um, you know, I do polish my grudge stone. I carve their name in, and but I carry it silent. I carry it silently in my pocket. Um, 
Yeah. I mean, I just, once I'm mad, it doesn't necessarily go, but at the same time, like the, the, the thing that sometimes is just as powerful is, um, my understanding of what would happen. Like, I can't imagine, I mean, certainly I knew Tanakasi Coates or Cornell West, but like to get into this on Twitter, I just sort of feel like my understanding is that it is a shifting floor in which I am poised to fall. Well, yeah. I mean, I actually, when writing this list, tried hard to find more examples of women and, you know, there, there are some, but women in publishing are really expected to, I think Emily Gould wrote about this, maybe, um, if I'm remembering right, are expected to bring cookies. They're not expected. They're expected to be baking cookies for everyone. They're expected to be likable. There was sort of a feud about likability that that was started by Claire Massoud uh, when she had that interview uh, with Publishers Weekly, I think it was when she, you know she, they asked her. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Remember they they asked her, "Would you like to be friends with your character Nora from the woman?" Oh Station? yeah. She was like, she was like, I forget exactly what she said, but it was basically, "Why are you asking me that question? Would you ask that question of Nabokov? Like, do you want to be friends with Humbert Humbert?" And that led to this whole feud, which I thought was a very meta feud at the time because Jennifer Weiner was like, you know, yes likability is good why is everyone hating on likability because in response to the Claire Massoud thing everyone said yeah likability who cares about that and so there were these these factions about you know likability and whether it was important to have characters be likable in fiction and whether men get the same question but of course the meta argument is women themselves are expected to be likable female writers themselves are expected to be likable and so it's actually rare to be having this argument with women at the center or with women at the center because usually they're making cookies. <laughs> grudge or they're cookies. asked to make grudge cookies. cookies. Or Sugi is carving her, your initials into a rock that she's polishing and putting in her pocket. Yeah, maybe she'll feed that to you. <laughs> the grudge cookie made of rock. <laughs> if, you, if you expect me to make cookies, that's where the grudge begins. Um, I, I just like think that, yeah, I mean, it's so like the way the layers of that, um, the layers of the many ways that we're read. I mean, right. So many of these feuds are about just wanting to be read. It seems to me like, honestly, like the way that you were written on the page. And of course, like that happens more to some people than to others. Like that's a, that's a, I'd like to think it's a right, but it certainly seems to be handed around like a privilege. Um, the way that people read each other seems to me to be like the basis of all of the arguments. And you don't actually see things here that are like, right, when we were going through your list of literary feuds, I did kind of wonder, you know, like which ones didn't make the list? You know, was the, they're the person who, the two writers who showed up at a party like wearing the same dress or, you know, the, the, the writer who brought another writer like a terrible bottle of wine. I mean, I don't know, like the, right, the little, sometimes the circles are very small or they can feel very small and overlapping. Uh, we've talked about this in a very serious way, but we have to also know that many of these are very funny <laughs> So I wondered if you guys wanted to cite what you thought was your the, the feud that was most amusing to you. Uh, my one that I actually teach because I, I in part because I, I like both writers and think they're both very, you know, and have learned from both of them. But I found the feud really funny. Um, and that is the... Uh, there was this sort of back and forth on publishing between Ben Marcus and, and Jonathan Franzen. 
and they both wrote long pieces in Harper's about like how nobody reads them, but for different reasons, you know. So uh, Franzen wrote a very long, famous Harper's piece uh, before the corrections came out, talking about how nobody reads fiction anymore, and he's like has no chance of competing with popular culture, and and he has learned to let he wants to try to make people read more fiction, right? And again, he was st- placing himself in a position of being unread, which was not true. He's publishing a giant article in Harper's, a great place to be read. And so then Ben Marcus, a few years later, published a book about how nobody reads experimental fiction. And his like the person he was arguing with was that article by Jonathan Franzen. And Franzen is in the article a lot. And again, he's like positioning himself and like, nobody wants to read the kind of work I want to write. But I'm like, yes, dude, but you are also publishing this in a very large place in Harper's Magazine where everyone is going to read it, you know, compared to my students. Students who are here in Missouri, you know, like nobody ever looks at anything that they do. And so to me, that was an amusing feud. I had I got a kick out of that one. Yeah. Well, and that's and that's a subset of the larger feud, which is the people versus Jonathan Franzen. (laughs) That he just typically doesn't have any sense or perspective of the world in which he's operating. And he just, you know, more power to him, I guess. He gets to like live in this space where he's just at home looking at birds and sometimes gets lambasted for saying something about social media. Um, I think, I don't know that I have an obvious one that I think is the funniest. I had almost forgotten about A.S. Byatt versus Margaret Drabble until I got to your list. And then I was like, oh, I think that's the one that makes me the saddest <laughs> because yeah. it's the only one on the list that's sibling. Um, and to me, that's just like imagining, I don't know, writing at your sibling in that way. Um, it's just a, yeah, it's a sad story, but, um, yeah, I'll have to, I'll have to keep thinking. About nice work on the funny one. example. <laughs> See, this is why I had to teach a class on humor. I just naturally gravitate to the one that's sad and then I have to like go and look up jokes in an organized fashion. I was really amused by reading about, um, what it was Updike and Rushdie and then also John le Carre and Rushdie. Is that uh, like those were both ones where I was like, I mean, Updike really gets on people's nerves, right? Like there's, and then the obvious comeback is kind of like, well, you stay in the suburbs, Updike. And that's basically <laughs> what Rushdie says. Yeah, it's, a, I mean, we're talking about writers. So if they don't get a good zinger in there, they, you know, they've really missed an opportunity. Yeah. So like the, my other favorite zinger from here is Norman Mailer hitting Gorbidal in the face, knocking him down. And then Gorbidal saying as he got back up, once again, words fail Norman Mailer. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 pithy insults is the basis of all good feuds. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us, leading us through the feuds, and we're very excited to uh, read your forthcoming novel, The Lightness. Thank you. I was intrigued. I wanted to know if you could tell us anything about what it's about. Does it have any feuds in it? It certainly has some discord. The log line is "Bad girls at Buddhist camp." Oh, I'm there. (laughs) We're excited to read it, excited to tell our listeners about it, and um, hope we can have you back sometime. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. We'd like to thank our intern producer, Stephen Power, as well as transcriptionist Damian Johansson. Our theme music is by Travis Workman. To subscribe to Fiction Nonfiction, please type in fiction slash non slash fiction into your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. You can reach us at fictionnonfictionpodcast at gmail.com. As the tax-deductible year draws to an end, Whitney and I also both wanted to mention nonprofits we're supporting. 
I'm a board member and mentor at the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop, which runs creative writing classes and associated programming and publishing for incarcerated writers. To donate, you can visit mnprisonwriting.org. This episode is also publishing on the day that Whitney is hosting a benefit dinner featuring Russell Franks for Literacy KC and the UMKC MFA program, which partner to teach teens and adults literacy. If you can get to the dinner and you're in Kansas City, you're in luck. You can still get a ticket at literacykc.org. Or if you are so unfortunate as to not live in Kansas City, you can still donate at that same website. Again, that's mnprisonwriting.org for the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and literacykc.org for Whitney's Benefit Dinner for Literacy KC. Thank you so much. All right, hold on. Stop the music. What Sugi and I forgot to mention when we taped that outro is that we are going to be in Miami at the Miami Book Fair on Saturday, the 17th of November. We're going to be doing two live shows, the first at 2.30 p.m. with Madeline Miller, the author of Circe, and Emily Watson, a translator, the translator, new translator of The Odyssey, and at 4 p.m., with Mark Leibovich, the author of The Big Game, The NFL in Dangerous Times, Etten Thomas, We Matter, Athletes and Activism, and Steve Almond, uh, the author of Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto. If you are in Miami, come see us. And if you're not, stay subscribed because we'll be broadcasting those live shows on our feed. Happy reading. Happy reading.